Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count. With Carl Truman, Todd Pruitt, and Amy Bird. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Well, thanks for joining us. Carl and Amy, we have a, a topic that um, I think we've hinted at periodically at various uh, episodes, but we want to tease out a little bit further. And it's this idea of sort of never ending adolescence or a trend that we see certainly here in, in our own culture with the extending of adolescence, the extending of childhood, the extending of irresponsibility. What do you think? You know, how, how do we need to respond to this? What's going on? What are the, what are the causes of this? I mean, I hear, for instance, I think maybe I hear about this situation the most from single women who are oftentimes frustrated with the men their age who want to kind of always be a frat boy or always be in, in the dating phase, but have a hard time uh, making adult decisions and uh, kind of perennially uh, adolescent. So that's kind of what we want to delve into a little bit. even as a young married adult, I mean, I, I got married very young. I was 21 mm-hmm. and I was fresh out of college. So that word adult is such a heavy word mm-hmm. now, I think. And even I was confused as a married woman. Um, I didn't feel like an adult still. And mm-hmm. I didn't know. I remember thinking, okay. Am I an adult when I start having kids? I mean, I had my own business. Um, mm-hmm. I think it was really official laid on me that, okay, I have a minivan. I drive a minivan. Right. Now. So now I'm officially. <laughs> <laughs> That'll do I it. Gotta call myself yeah. an adult at this right. point. I had two kids and a minivan. Yeah. But I mean, I do think that, um, this extended childhood, this, this even category of adolescence is, it's so vague. Like we don't have uh, the rites of passage anymore mm-hmm. yeah. that we used to have. I think there's quite a lot of, when you, when you look at history, I think childhood and adolescence, there's quite a lot of historical and social construction that go on in, in, in what those terms mean. It's certainly true to say that when you look across the animal kingdom as a whole, human beings have longer childhoods, longer periods of dependency right. upon the adults in their species than I think any other species on the face sure. of the earth. And that is in some ways a, a good thing because it indicates human beings have so much more potential as persons mm-hmm. than let's say a, a puppy does or a kitten it's a dog can become an adult dog much quicker because being an adult dog is a relatively simple thing <laughs> compared to compared to, to yeah. what being an adult human being is yeah. uh, so it's part of of our god designed human nature i sure. think to have extended periods of right. childhood compared to any other creature sure. on, on the face of the earth. What's interesting in recent years is the way I almost see the two almost contradictory movements at play in, in society. On the one hand, there does seem to be an extension of childishness into what would previously have been adulthood. When I think of my own grandfather leaving school at 12 or 13, straight into the workforce, working in a factory, I don't want to go back to that particular era. But my grandfather had what we would now regard as serious adult responsibilities Mm -hmm. to his family, his parents, his his younger siblings, 
from the age of 12 or 13. He was part of the, the breadwinning components mm -hmm. of, of the family. Uh, we don't have that anymore. We have people who are still dependent well into their 20s, maybe even right. on into their 30s. On the other hand, we also have this strange phenomenon that that, that which used to mark adulthood, uh, most obvious being you know, one's emergence as a sexual being, mm -hmm. now being projected back into to childhood just this week as we record uh, California have passed legislation on new school curriculum that will put lesbian and gay components into the curriculum for second graders. Right. So we are treating prepubescent children as highly sexualized beings now, in other words, as adults, right. at the same time as extending the old-fashioned childhood well into 20s and 30s. And it's an, it's an interesting, if somewhat contradictory, phenomenon. Right. So, so we're exposing them to far more graphic information, particularly in regards to sex, and yet expecting far less from them uh, in regards to personal maturity and responsibility. Social that's a dangerous, that's yes. a dangerous mix. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's what I was thinking, too, is that um, childhood has been extended. But then what have we also, um, like, look at your grandfather's childhood. And I just wonder um, if you compare that to the childhoods today, even though we have so much more to give our children, um, they've also been deprived I think of a lot of the wonder and um, just time in solitude to think, you know, like yeah. they have all these wonderful devices um, that they constantly need to be entertained and interacting in that way right. with multiple messages coming at them all the time. And they're uh, have all these images before them yeah. all the time. And even sports. I mean, I am really struggling with my children's sports because Everything is hyper organized and to the point where like my daughter will have two or three softball games in one day and they're long and it's hot out. So what do you think happens to backyard ball? There's no neighborhood ball game going on anymore. Everyone drives an hour away to a tournament yeah. or longer, comes home and they're tired. Yeah, They've so, been overworked. So recreation has taken on th this deep, deep sense of, of purpose for our kids to the extent that kids don't even play multiple sports anymore because they have right. to be so Year committed round. to one sport. And yet, again, same problem. And yet in, in other areas where, where children at one time were expected to take up certain responsibilities, uh, that's not present. And even if I think, as, as I think about my own kids, I mean, one of the things that causes me to cringe a little bit in my own parenting is that if I'm to be honest, I expect less from my kids than my parents expected of me at their age. My kids do less than I did at their age. And that's just not me projecting, right? Genuinely, they have fewer responsibilities than I did. And, and, and that's a, that's been a mistake on my part. And it, you know, what Amy was saying also reminds me of our friend Tony Esselin when he right. was on the podcast yeah. some time ago. The regimenting of life, teaching to the test, et cetera, et cetera, as a, as a way of killing children's imagination. Right, it's just killing their and, imagination. And that raises an interesting issue about childhood in that I think it was Einstein who said that, that all of his great discoveries came from the fact that he'd retained the mind of a child. Mm -hmm. What he meant by that was that he retained that basic curiosity. Why right. is this the way it Exploring. is? Why does it work? Why does this move that way? Mm -hmm. Those curious questions that kids love to ask when they're small. And there's and the, a freedom of, to fail there, too, yeah, I think, that yeah. we don't have now. As um, I, I think the, the teaching to the test and the crushing mm -hmm. of children's imagination has 
it's not made them permanently children. It's actually destroyed an important part of childhood mm -hmm. that's actually quite important to retain even, even mm -hmm. as an adult. So what is it, do you think, that is contributing to this extended adolescence we see? I mean, there are pretty hefty intellectuals who have written um, on this phenomenon in our culture of, you know, 25 year old adolescence. Um, what is it then that is, because on the one hand, we're saying that childhood is incredibly important. Let children be children. We certainly don't advocate expecting a six year old to be an adult. So we want children to fully enjoy and, and have their childhood. And yet the problem is we, we have this category for adolescence that now used to basically end at 17 or 18, but seems it's extending into the late twenties. What's contributing? To this. I think there's a whole heap of things that contribute to it. Um, uh, one example would be we, we just have much more comfortable lives now. I mean, mm -hmm. my, there was a reason my grandfather left school at 12 and went to work in a factory, and that mm -hmm. was the family needed the money to put shoes on the feet and bread on the table. Mm -hmm. we, we now have the luxury not to take responsibility. We've created all kinds of social and cultural buffers that – and there's some of they good things that mm -hmm. free us up from responsibility. I think easy credit is another one. You know, my grandfather never, I don't think he ever borrowed any money in his life. Yeah. Uh, everything had to be paid for up front. Um, I think there's a sexual component to mm -hmm. it. And we've talked before about this, but both in, in biblical teaching and in history, uh, sex, legitimate sex was a passage to adulthood. Right. You leave your mother and father and you go with your partner and you become one flesh and it's a rite of passage into adulthood. Yeah. By turning sex into a recreation, a hobby, a detaching it from the, the deep social relations that it was once a, a crucial component part of, we've actually deprived ourselves of a rite of passage. Mm -hmm. We don't have that symbolic move. I mean, you'll know, Todd, you've done weddings. To me, the most powerful part of a wedding is when the minister says, who gives this woman mm. to this man? And the father says, I do. He kisses the bride, mm -hmm. and then he goes back into the congregation. Right. Right. And it's a powerful liturgical moment mm -hmm. because suddenly the father is nobody. Yeah. And the woman has been passed to right. this, this new man. And She's become an adult almost. Right. Not that single people can't become adults, but there's, there's an important part, I think, of our understanding of sex and marriage that right. also plays into this permanent adolescence. Yeah. And so when, when, when you lift, uh, sex out of, uh, its legitimate expression. And, and again, we're not so naive as to think that past cultures didn't have sex going on outside of marriage. The, no, I'm talking the, legitimate. Exactly. Sex and, and recognized. Exactly. And the difference today. Versus past generations is that it's encouraged and celebrated rather than being seen as something you kind of need to keep secret. But the point is now is that you can be fully gratified, um, uh, sexually, so to speak, uh, without any of the adult responsibilities yeah. of that. It's, it has no more social significance than eating a donut. Right. You do it for yourself. Mm -hmm. You don't do it to locate yourself within the broader right. social and cultural structure and framework. Right. So think about, um, you know, you introduced kind of talking about, uh, men who wouldn't commit kind mm -hmm. of thing. Um, I do think as parents, you know, you want your kids to be more comfortable than you were maybe, mm -hmm. and, and you're able to afford that. Right. And, um, there's this 
crisis, really, when you're on your own, whether as a single or whether you're now taking care of a family and a marriage. Um, can I make it? Like, oh, yeah. wow, this is on my shoulders now. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's a stress crisis situation, right. and you grow through that, and you become someone. Mm-hmm. It's a rite of passage. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think also um, in, a, in a committed relationship, too, there's a crisis going on there in the beginning, too, because, oh, I have all these feelings that I didn't have before. Um, do I really want to be interdependent with another person? And in that first year of marriage, you know, there's a lot to work out um, with two becoming one. And I think that is another rite of passage mm-hmm. and growth. And, and when you have something introduced the way it is in our society as pornography, where it's just everywhere, um, I just think it's so easy for guys to become comfortable with that in this fantasy world and they don't ever have to enter into these stressful situations with real people and and work these things out and grow through them i think it really interferes mm-hmm. with you know same with um you know just if you could live, live at home until you're 35 right. <laughs> you know you don't have to work out what right. it takes to, to do it on your own yeah. and, and i think that that's a huge contributing factor here and i understand the impulse to want to protect your kids from being hurt to want to protect your kids from going through hard times i know those emotions and when your child is hurting or going through something that causes them pain i know the impulse i understand the impulse to try to want to stop that and there are times when that's appropriate the problem is as far as what I've been able to observe is that we've so shielded our children from things that cause them discomfort or pain or dismay that by the time that they're, for instance, in, in a university setting, they have to have safe spaces mm-hmm. to protect them from the fact that somebody has a different opinion than, than they have. Again, that that's typical childhood behavior. You know, a child cries, when when somebody says you're wrong or they disagree well now we have 22 year olds that cry just based on the knowledge that a teacher or or an organization on campus disagreed uh with them and i and i, and I think that a lot of this is due to the fact that we have just so insulated our children from being disappointed from being hurt from having to say to them i know this is really hard and it's probably going to be hard for you for a while and to let them stay in, yeah. in that for a while we have catastrophized trivia mm. you know the, the, I, I think the anti-bullying industry yes. for example has a lot to answer for yes nobody's in favor of bullying right but when you look at what the anti-bullying industry is now doing it is so expanded the notion right. of bullying and so catastrophized it is if you're bullied at school you're going to be scarred for life yeah. you know i'm s- sorry to say it but there are certain people who stood by and saw their parents burned to dust in the gas chambers of Auschwitz, Mm. who went on to make pretty good, decent runs of their lives. If somebody said something nasty to you at school, that's not necessarily bullying. It's not catastrophic, and you can recover from it. But we continually press the catastrophizing of trivia in a way that I think leads to the the scenarios that uh, you said. And the other side of that, of course, is, Todd, not only do we protect our children catastrophized trivia mm-hmm. if i could put it that way we also impress upon them that they're the most important thing in the universe yeah. so you have this odd mix of very immature people who are incapable of accepting criticism uh, combined with supreme self-confidence <laughs> that's, that's what right. you see on the campuses frankly i see a lot of it on twitter i sometimes follow these 
Twitter exchanges, and you see people that you'd have thought would be very mature adults mm-hmm. engaging with each other in a very, very childish way. Right. And I think it's it's this strange, you know, again, a kind of dual movement. On the one hand, we protect our kids because we catastrophize trivia. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, we boost their self-confidence by telling them that they're the center of the universe. Right. And that's a lethal combination. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that point of catastrophizing trivia is very, very interesting because, again, it used to be just normal if you were a kid that some other kid was going to say or do something mean to you. Yeah. I mean, that was just that was just the way. It, and you didn't it, need it to go was. to a group counseling it, session. And as a result. that exactly. And that is what has happened is now we've told kids that if somebody says or does something mean to them, then some great, terrible injustice has occurred, and now they've been scarred for life. And because of that, they need to seek some sort of recompense. And so we're creating damaged kids. Uh, we're convincing them they're damaged rather than just, no, this is what happens in life. Um, hard things happen. Unpleasant things happen. And, and learning that is part of growing up. Right. And, right. and not stepping in mm. and handling it for them. I mean, right. I know that's one thing my husband and I have, you know, really tried not to do in some of those situations is to make our children be able to go right. and have a healthy, as healthy as possible confrontation on those issues mm-hmm. instead of us going in to the teacher or, yeah. um, you know, there's times where that's necessary, but, um, yeah, I'm having your school. child deal yeah. with conflict right. themselves, even with coaches, um, sure. you know, doing that with coaches. Yep. Has been another big issue. You know, another thing I struggle with now at this stage of parenting, I had so much more confidence when the kids were little, you know, and, and they had to listen to me. Mm-hmm. And now that they're getting older and I'm seeing my role is, okay, my role isn't to have them be dependent on me when they're 20. My role is to have them be more and more independent from right. my husband and I. And so now my oldest, you know, has her driver's license and I just wonder, like, how much can you hover over a 17 year old? You know, like, what do you, and I think that's, that's tracking <laughs> software on the new crisis, a new uh, crisis situation yeah. in parenting right. and yeah. growing through because I really do think you're so, I know I am so afraid of my children just making a wrong decision, mm-hmm. um, a sinful decision, a right. mistake, you know, yeah. whatever it is and, um, affecting their life. Being just like you. I mean, you want to make worried about it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't you're want to be like me. You're remembering yes. what you got up yeah. to. Yeah. But yeah. no, like, you don't want them to have this perfectly clean record, you yeah. know, of childhood memories yeah. and experiences. And um, I think it is hard. We, we kind of step in for them mm. a little too much. It's hard to know the line between mm. protecting them and parenting them and, and setting them out, sending them mm-hmm. out to um, make their own choices. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the hope is that by the, by the time, uh, someone is 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 twenty. Um, they're actually able to do things like um, spend their money responsibly, you know, make decisions, grown up adult decisions. But mm. but we're seeing less and less of that. Mm. And pay the consequences when they don't. Ab- I absolutely. think a lot of times parents step yep. in and pay the consequences yep. for yep. them or don't yep. hand over consequences. And I mean, you just think that age of adolescence is really a target market because I look at my daughter's age at seventeen and she's got her part time job, you know, and um, she pays for her own gas and her own activities when she goes out and, and part of her car insurance even. But still, she has a ton of free time and mm-hmm. she has a lot of disposable income. Right. Well, this goes back to my point about we live more comfortably now. Right. I mean, teenagers yes. emerged as a concept in the mm-hmm. 50s, I think, mm-hmm. the post-war boom right. concept. And now it's their target market. People suddenly realized this is 
There's money to be made. Here. Right. Yeah, a lot of money to be made. Goods to these mm-hmm. these yeah. people. Yeah, I would not. I I got my driver's license on my 16th birthday. I would that not is a have crime. Dri- <laughs> is I a, would not have driven had I not had a job. Right. Yeah. Because I there was no way my parents were going to pay for either my gas or my car insurance. Mm-hmm. Period. Mm-hmm. I had to have a job already in place when I was 16, or else I wasn't going mm-hmm. to be driving. Now mm-hmm. I hate to say I haven't had that same standard with my kids mm. and it makes me mad at me <laughs> well, well some of it of course is the way that society itself has moved in that it becomes hard for kids to function in any way especially with those sports if they they're playing drive, yeah. if they can't if they don't have access to computers right kind of thing. but to bring this back to to turn it in a slightly different direction and biblically at this point we are told numerous times in scripture you know suffer the little children to come Unto me, unless you become like a little child. Mm-hmm. So scripture itself commends children Absolutely. as models of what it means to be a Christian adult. The way I've na- navigated this in the past is to, to make a distinction between childish and childlike. Yeah. Uh, what do you think of that? Yeah. I think, I think that's a, a very important distinction because again, we, we don't want to, to set up some sort of a standard that, you know, unless we're in, um, Victorian London where, you know, six year olds are in a textile mill, you know, somehow we're being soft. So they wouldn't have been in a mill in London. They'd probably been going up chimneys, but there so. you go. You send them up chimneys. <laughs> mills small bodies. They're, they're, yeah. they're small bodies can fit. So yeah. we're, 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 they were very good at that, actually. Yeah. yeah. I mean, but we're not advocating anything like that. Obviously, well, what are the virtues of being child? What are the virtues of being childlike? So, so a virtue of being childlike, you know, I mean, we, we mentioned Tony Esselin earlier. Uh, he actually, uh, puts it quite well. You know, the, um, the, the activation of the imagination, um, you know, uh, going outside and looking at, you know, one of the things he said was, you know, if, if you want to kill your child's imagination, you know, make sure they never go outside and are never alone, you know, that sort of thing. Um, children are able, to have time that is unencumbered with the sorts of pressures that adults rightfully have to bear so that they can experience a level of, of happiness and insulation. We do rightly insulate our children from mm. certain things, but as they get older, we begin to expose them more and more to some of these things that they're going to have to carry. Um, as they, as they get older. And I fear, my fear is that this is being put off until somebody's 22, 24, 25 years old. And I, by that time, I don't know if you can learn. And I think it's beyond that. When you, this week we've had this Pokemon Go pro- yes. game launch. Did you know 30 year olds are playing? Oh, oh yeah. Just it's, it's, but it's made the main, it's been on the news. Right. I mean, <laughs> this is pathetic. It is childishness. Exactly. Being paraded as something cool and good. And right. I just, I look at that and I shake my head. So, why don't you read a book? Right. Yeah. Are there no books to read? Right. Are there no poems to learn? Well, that's one uh, thing that is, I really it's think quite uh, it is. marks the, the teenagers and young adults of our culture now is completely disconnected from history. And it's like their generation is their generation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I think that um, Robert Harrison, he says something interesting in his book, Juvenescence, that we need to turn our children into heirs rather than orphans mm. of history. Mm-hmm. And, and renew its legacies. And so I wonder, like, as you're talking about your grandfather's childhood and we're yeah. comparing that to our children's childhood or our own, um, you know, just w- ways. And, and I think the church offers something wonderful there because, yeah. you know, just within our confessions of the church and in our church history as well. And 
you know, reading scripture of all things, mm-hmm. ancient document, um, you know, we have so much to offer in that way. Yeah. 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 You know, as, as I was thinking about this a little bit of just some practical things that parents can do for their children while they're still tr- children. To Expose them in the wild. Send them out in the woods. No. But, but doing things like start giving them responsibilities early on. Now, it could be something very simple, but, but start giving them responsibilities early on. Here's a can of gas and a box of matches. Please exactly. don't mix the two, but you often wander yeah, here's around a, here's with a bag of, kind of big, big bag of broken yeah. glass, that kind of thing. But no, begin ha- expecting certain things from them and, and hold the line on those things another couple things that i became aware of when my kids were a little bit younger is make sure that they attend um, certain things that are very unentertaining for them specifically your sermons oh gosh (laughs) this is so difficult (laughs) no take them to things like weddings and funerals um, because there they begin softball to, games. well, there they, <laughs> women's softball games. Um, that's a horror show hey. unto itself, but no, take them to things like weddings and funerals, because for instance, at funerals, it gives you an op. Children need to have conversations mm-hmm. about death. Mm-hmm. Um, weddings also then give you an excuse to talk to your child about these kind of really, really momentous decisions that they're going to have to make one day. The other thing is that there's nothing entertaining about weddings or funerals, or at least there shouldn't be. I, I fear that that's beginning to change, but it helps to teach them mm. to, to, to sit and to watch important. The sobriety of life. Exactly. That's yeah. something else that Harrison says in his book. He says, and referring back to the Albert Einstein quote, thus if our genius derives from our reluctance to grow up, our wisdom derives in turn from our heightened awareness of death. That's a great. And I think we do try to avoid the, the death topic. Yeah. With yeah. That's, I think, a great quotation to close with. Um, well, we've got back to form. We've done a middle-aged bald guy railing against the youth of today thing, I think, which is one of our strong suits on mortification of spin. Uh, we trust that this podcast has been helpful, perhaps in stimulating further thoughts and discussion for you. Please visit our website, mortificationofspin.org. Subscribe and rate us on iTunes if you're going to give us five stars. If you're not going to give us five stars, there's no need to worry about that rating thing at all. We're making a free offer this week. If you go to our website and sign up, we're giving away three copies of Robert Pogue Harrison's book, Juvenescence, A Cultural History of Our Age. It's a deliberately ambiguous title. A little caveat, perhaps a trigger warning for the youth of today. Uh, it's not a specifically Christian book. It's a very philosophical book. There's uh, chunks of philosophy in it that certainly we three as hosts would not subscribe to ourselves. But it is a fascinating take on the perception of youth throughout history in a, a sort of strongly philosophical bent. So we'd recommend you sign up for a free copy of that. If you're not lucky enough to get a free copy, buy a copy on on Amazon. Another book to think about getting hold of would be Neil Postman's Amusing Ourselves to Death, which is was a landmark text in looking at the trivialization of life and the development of permanent adolescence within our culture. And we look forward to being with you next time.
Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Visit the podcast page and blog at mortificationofspin.org, where we'll have links and other articles from Amy, Carl, and Todd. And while you're there, please subscribe and consider making a donation. And be sure to listen next time when Carl, Todd, and Amy talk about... You know, it's a, I think the first thing one has to acknowledge is that the wider culture in which we operate these days is very committed to denying death in all kinds of ways. Death is put far away from us. Do you ever think of a funeral service as also a, a chance for evangelism? Because temp- contemporary evangelicalism wants to make everything positive and, and pleasant and happy, we've, we've done the same thing even with our funerals. We'll talk to you next time on Mortification of Spin.